0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Some parts of Colorado got five months' worth of moisture in last weekend's blizzard. But how much effect can one storm have after intensely dry months that have left most of the state in drought? We asked the director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. Then, with so much hope riding on the COVID-19 vaccines to finally end the pandemic, we talk with an expert who compares the discovery of mRNA vaccines to another monumental breakthrough.
1: It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
0: Plus, the Purplish team takes on the stimulus plan. How much help will Colorado get, and how will that money get used? And new songs for our Pandemic Escape playlist, courtesy of Tigre DJ Laura Resendez of Thornton.
2: It talks about the love of, uh,
3: of life. Hi, this is Kathy from Lakewood, and I wanted to submit an expression of gratitude for CPR and all of the staff that work so hard to bring us beautiful music, accurate news, and soulful enrichment every day. You're always there for us. We appreciate you.
4: All that you rely on from
0: CPR wouldn't be possible without you. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. What's making the woman who leads the state's water conservation efforts happy as a clam? All this snow. Becky Mitchell is director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She has perspective on what effect one storm can have on drought conditions that plague most of the state. Becky, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks, Avery, for having me.
0: Good news about water and drought seem rare. Becky, will you just share some of your enthusiasm for the blizzard with us?
3: Um, i I was excited um as could be this uh, last week as we heard the the news of the storm coming in. We knew we needed some relief from the drought.
0: And as the snow fell, a lot of us were watching for record-breaking depth. We got two feet in Denver, the most from one storm in almost two decades. But not all snow is created equal in terms of how much water is in it. How was this blizzard in terms of actual precipitation?
3: Um, Thanks for that question, Avery. So, you know, in Denver, we saw that 27.1 inches, which made... made that the fourth biggest snowstorm on record um but then in Fort Collins and Greeley we saw um a, a bit less than that so 20 inches in Fort Collins 14 inches in um Greeley uh that we need to look at that on a, uh, water equivalent. So the snow melt and what it equals in water. So, um, what it comes, what comes out of that snowfall. So Denver, that 27.1 inches basically equaled 2.9 inches of snow melt water, half of what we received since October 1st. So half of what we, um, what we've received, uh, came in, in, um, in one event, which is really good. And so um, the South Platte and the Republican River Basins um, look about on average to be getting two inches of water.
0: And so you, you mentioned the Front Range, it got most of the snow and so most of the water. But areas that typically get less precipitation overall might actually feel more effects from this blizzard, even if the snow didn't pile as high. Which areas saw the most impact from this storm?
3: You know, I really think um it was the entire Eastern plains that were the real winners. they they um they needed it. and uh, i I think that um, the Arkansas Basin got about one to one and a half inches of water, um, which is which is less, but um but it it was very good for one winter weekend for them.
0: And put that in context for us. like how much? how many months worth of water is that for the, for Eastern Plains?
3: Um, you know, it's, it's not as much as you think, um, in, when we looked at the amount that came in, in the North central front range mountains, um, that it, it was equal to about two to three weeks of precipitation at this time. Um, but it, it is still very, very, very helpful. And
0: then places like Akron, you've mentioned before, got quite a bit of water for in months, right?
3: Oh, definitely. Um, in in Akron, um, the average precipitation from November to uh, November 1st to March 31st is 2.6 inches. Um, they got 1.7 inches of water um in this one storm. So that's that's really um portions of the eastern plains got five months worth of precip in one single um. Weekend. And then, That's sp- amazing.
0: Yeah, and then speaking about how people use this water, how is the timing of the storm for agriculture on the Eastern Plains?
3: Um, this this isn't bad. This this isn't um, bad timing. Kind of kind of uh, sets us up for the irrigation season and pretty
0: much good moisture in the soils that's good isn't bad we'll take it pretty much the entire state 98 percent was in drought last week with most of the extreme drought concentrated on the western slope and the eastern plains was this storm enough to move the needle in places of extreme drought
3: so this was a good water week for most of the state state and it will have short-term benefits um especially for the planes. Um, Hopefully it will have long-term effects um, also, but um, that's not not necessarily a sure thing. We we don't look at um, drought just being over after one storm. It's, it's important to note though um, that most seasonal forecasts for spring have not um, predicted very good um, precipitation still. So while this storm was helpful for this weekend, it's only one spike um, in what we expect to be a very dry spring. I mean, and then we still have wildfires to face
0: and we know that we're still dealing with the effects of many dry months and wildfires. Of course, last summer's enormous wildfires left acres upon acres of burn scars. What issues might those pose when snowpack starts melting and water starts running through them?
3: Um, we're not as concerned um, as we were when we started hearing about this stir- um, storm in terms of the burn scars. But as um as we go through the season, you know these big events are difficult. When we look at um, where our fires happened last year, and even the previous years before that, um, it, when there is potential for debris and water quality issues, because um, you know the the forest provides some level of filtration as as water meets the stream, and um, and so without that. Um, that's, that's where some of our concern is.
0: And tell me what some of those concerns are.
3: Um, primarily water quality is is one of the issues and then the water being unusable because there's, um, large amounts of debris. And so, um, and, and mudslides and all of those health, life and safety concerns.
0: In the mountains, this blizzard, it added to snowpack, and when that melts in the spring, that's an important influx of water for ecosystems and reservoirs. How is the snowpack looking right now?
3: Uh, So it is worth noting that um, reports on Monday morning indicated that um, most watersheds are back up above that 90 percent. We have one basin that's above 100 percent, but... We're still below normal in the South Platte watershed, and so um, this is good. But this is just a moment of in time, so that's that's important to remember.
0: Again, going back to that idea that you know it just takes a long time to for anything to move the needle. One storm is not going to solve all our problems. Is it too early right now to look for indicators of what Colorado's wildfire season might be like this summer?
3: Um we're we're definitely looking out on on what that means the or what our wildfire season may look like. Remember a lot of that is based on um soil moistures and and precipitation throughout the season. And so um we are we are definitely concerned based on predictions from um what what um the weather forecasters are predicting for the long term, but uh, we, we uh, will be ready for that.
0: Becky, I want to thank you so much for sharing.
3: Thank you so much, Avery, for having us on this very important topic.
0: Becky Mitchell is director of the Colorado Water Conservation Board.
3: She spoke with me about the effects of last weekend's blizzard
0: on drought conditions in Colorado. Our next guest likens the discovery of mRNA vaccines to another monumental breakthrough.
1: That's one small step for man,
5: one giant leap for mankind.
0: Tom Check is a Nobel laureate and professor of biochemistry at the University of Colorado Boulder. He thinks it's hard to understate the importance of mRNA, which is the key to the vaccines developed by Pfizer and Moderna, Czech, who is an expert on mRNA, says that past researchers at CU Boulder have played a central role in what we understand about the molecule. Tom, welcome.
1: Good morning. Good to be here.
0: Let's just start with the basics. In layperson's terms, what is mRNA?
1: Well, mRNA or messenger RNA uh, is a copy of the code that we have in the DNA in our chromosome. So the DNA is copied into a messenger RNA, and then it contains the information which is required to make a particular protein. So each gene in the DNA makes a particular mRNA which makes a specific protein. In the case of the coronavirus vaccine, the protein we need to make is the spike protein that is sticking out of the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, and so we need to use a a messenger RNA that will code for that protein.
0: And just briefly, how is that different from RNA?
1: Well, RNA is a more general term. RNA can either be coding, as in the case of a messenger RNA, Or it can be a non-coding RNA, which plays a different kind of a role in our cells. So
0: it's a less specific term. And as I understand it, proteins could be called workhorses of the body. Every function of the body is carried out via proteins. Is that right?
1: Well, uh, certainly RNA also um, deserves some credit here. That's uh, what our early work um, that was honored in Stockholm showed. But yes, most of the the, uh, movers and shakers in the cell our proteins. They make our muscles move. Um, They digest our food in our stomach. They're responsible for cellular structures. And so proteins are um, really most of what uh, a a biological organism is made of.
0: And the two mRNA vaccines being used for COVID-19 are made by companies Pfizer and Moderna. Can you explain in basic terms how they work?
1: Yes. Well, uh, what you need for a vaccine is to, uh, what is a vaccine? A vaccine gives a heads up to our immune system, right? It's sort of like telling the immune system, if you ever see this protein, remember, it's not good. You need to do something about it. You need to fight it. And so uh, we need to somehow uh, present something that looks like the outside of the virus to our immune system. Now, the traditional way of doing this is to use a, a killed or a debilitated virus. Um, that, is, that works. It's very slow. It's expensive. Uh, if you have to grow up uh, vats full of uh, coronavirus, you need to, to worry about the safety. And so instead, you can just use this principle that I talked about that DNA makes Messenger RNA makes a protein, and scientists thought scientists at Moderna and BioNTech-Pfizer said, um, "You know, let's just short circuit this whole thing. All we need is to provide the messenger RNA to our immune system. It'll, if we can get it into the cells, it'll make the spike protein. It there's no chance then of getting an infection from this because it's not the the." active part of the virus. It's simply a piece of the exterior shell of the virus. And, you know, it's sort of like putting a man on the moon, as you uh, talked about in your intro. You have all the technology lined up. Everything says this really should work. And then you try it and, wow, it really worked. And, and that was the, the sort of eureka moment with these messenger RNA vaccines.
0: So research into mRNA is decades old, and in recent years, there's been a lot of research into how it could be used to develop these effective vaccines. How close were scientists understanding how to do this before the pandemic?
1: Well, uh, a lot of this has to do with research that was done uh, at CU Boulder, uh, not in my own lab, but let me just, uh, this is so common in science that everything that we do you know, stands on the shoulders of the giants who have come before. And uh, this, is a, this mRNA vaccine discovery is really a good case in point. So uh, in order to make a messenger RNA vaccine, you need to make lots of RNA. Well, how do you do that? Well, this process is called in vitro transcription. And it was really optimized and developed by Professor Aki Uhlenbeck in the biochemistry department at CU Boulder. Uh, What is in vitro transcription? Sorry for the technical term, but in vitro means in glass, it's Latin. And we continue to say in vitro, even though now we use plastic test tubes instead of glass. And transcription is copying uh, DNA into RNA. And so uh, he figured out to do this as a research tool many decades before uh, there was a need to make vats full of messenger RNA for a vaccine.
0: So it's great to see how many years of work went into this vaccine that was developed incredibly quickly after the pandemic. Um, How is the mRNA vaccine different than how a vaccine like Johnson & Johnson works?
1: Well, again, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uses nucleic acid, but in this case double helical DNA that encodes the spike protein. So again, if you remember that DNA makes RNA makes protein, of course, you can start with the DNA and put that into um, a, a uh, something that'll allow it to get into the human body, in this case, a common cold virus called the adenovirus. And when it gets in, it is transcribed into messenger RNA and then into the spike protein. So you can start with the DNA or you can short circuit the whole thing and start with the messenger RNA.
0: And one of the benefits of the mRNA vaccines is the ability to tweak it so that it can also work with COVID-19 variants. Can you explain that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Once you understand this principle, if the spike protein mutates so that it starts, um, so vaccines start becoming less effective, then any undergraduate student working in my lab would be able within a week to redesign the uh, mRNA vaccine to now be specific for this new variant. It's that easy. And since the new vaccine would be 99% the same as the previous one, it would just be tweaked in a couple of positions to match the new variant spike protein, uh, although one still has to uh, go through safety and and uh, manufacturing studies, uh, certainly that would be much easier the next time around.
0: What other diseases do you foresee mRNA vaccines being able to treat?
1: Well, I think... Uh, this opens up many new possibilities for vaccine development, certainly, um, possibly even a, uh, a flu vaccine that would be um, more accurate uh, each, each year. But I think even beyond vaccines, there's a possibility that this new technology could be used uh, to treat cancer and other diseases, because, again, whenever there's a protein uh, let's say a genetic disease where a protein is missing, Uh, muscular dystrophy, where the uh, muscle protein dystrophin is is missing. One could conceive of this as a a novel way to introduce that protein into uh, a human who is missing that protein. So I think there's lots of potential here. It'll take some years before we really uh, realize the full potential.
0: Wow, exciting potential for this technology. Thank you so much for being here.
1: I enjoy joining you.
0: Tom Check. he's a Nobel laureate and professor of biochemistry at the University of Colorado Boulder. He'll be giving a virtual lecture on RNA that's open to the public Wednesday evening at 7. You can find more information at CPR.org. Rachel Hicks of Littleton has had a long commute for years, but the COVID-19 pandemic made it even worse for the RTD rider, especially because she's worried about getting the coronavirus from fellow passengers. We first heard from Hicks last year. CPR's Nathaniel Minor recently checked back in with her.
6: Okay, today is Sunday. It is 7.01 a.m. And I've just left my house to go and catch the bus.
7: Rachel Hicks commutes from Littleton to a restaurant job at Denver International Airport four days a week. She recorded a recent trip.
6: Yeah, I just got on the bus. It is immaculate, just me and the driver. And of course, we're both wearing masks.
7: Hicks used to be able to get to work with just one transfer. But then RTD cut service last spring, when the pandemic kept many passengers at home. Now, she takes a bus, two light rail trains, and a commuter train on the weekends. Three transfers. And that takes a lot of time.
6: This is the problem with this weekend commute. That and these walks here are like not shoveled, which means I probably won't make it.
7: But we'll see. Hicks hustles to the train station, but it's too late.
6: So it's 7.18, light rail just pulled away, even though I know the driver had to have seen me. There'll be another one here at 7.33, which will make me officially late for work.
7: Getting to work on time is especially important. Missed hours add up, and she needs the money. Hicks supports her adult son, who was just diagnosed with epilepsy, and she doesn't want to quit working at the airport to find something closer to
6: home. And I had been unemployed for seven years when I got this job. So, yeah, I'm kind of leery of going out and finding a different job. Hicks gets the next train and walks
7: through the Union Station bus concourse by about 8 a.m. It's here that RTD has had a hard time getting people to comply with mask orders.
6: So far, at least 80 percent of these people have not got masks on. And I have yet to see a transit cop.
7: She sits down on the A-Line, her last train. It gets more crowded as they get closer to the airport.
6: Okay, Central Park Station. 12 more people are getting on.
7: Being so close to so many people makes her uncomfortable. She got COVID at least once last year, probably from being on RTD, she says. But like a lot of the essential workers that have stayed on RTD through the pandemic, she doesn't have a choice. She says she'll be able to get her first vaccine dose in the coming weeks. The train pulls into DIA two minutes early, but Hicks still has to get to the restaurant where she works.
6: Okay, 8.53. I'm in the airport, beginning my trek across the airport. past the construction, you know, over the river, through the woods, blah, blah.
7: She makes it through security and gets to work six minutes late.
6: Okay, so I clocked in at 9.06, and that's the end of my commute. Two hours and six minutes total today.
7: Two hours and six minutes, and that's just one way. Her commute will get shorter once RTD can figure out how to restore more service, but that will likely require vaccinations to become far more widespread. So until then, Rachel Hicks is prepared for some long rides. I'm Nathaniel Minor, CPR News.
0: Vice President Kamala Harris will be in Denver today as part of a national tour to promote the American Rescue Plan. At nearly $2 trillion, that's a lot of money going a lot of different places. $250 million to remain available until expended. For $30 million shall
8: be used for the purposes described in Section 200 of the Domestic Violence Service Act. $1,464,500,000 to remain available. Until $500 September. million dollars to remain available.
6: Until in general, September. not
0: more than six billion four hundred ninety-two. $2 million dollars shall be made available. The stimulus payments and what they could mean to the state are a big part of the discussion on the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Let's join public affairs reporters Andrew Kinney, Caitlin Kim, and Benta Berkland.
4: Congress just passed a $1.9 trillion dollar plan. Before we start to break that down, let's just take a moment and try to envision how big this whole thing actually is. Courtesy of Wisconsin's Republican Senator Ron Johnson.
5: The, the human
1: mind really can't contemplate what a trillion is. So, so here's the calculation. I should have brought a dollar bill to just demonstrate its, its thickness, but the thickness of a dollar bill is 4.3 thousandths of an inch thick. We're talking about $1.9 trillion, which would stack up to 135,732 miles high Madam President, the distance to the moon is 238,900 miles. So that stack of $1.9 trillion worth of $1 bills would be more than halfway to the moon. That is what we are debating, spending a stack of dollar bills that extends more than halfway the distance to the moon.
5: I would say that I actually understand it less now that I use that metaphor. That does not help me at all. Do not get celestial bodies involved anywhere in my mental math.
4: <laughs> I know. It's like dollars, trillions, miles. I'm like, wait, what number are we talking Maybe he about could have here? just
5: said twice the amount we spend on the military every year.
4: Or, or maybe circumference. <laughs> oh, no, no, oh, no. no. No, please,
8: Lynn. Don't no. make it
5: three-dimensional. <laughs>
8: no. If you really want your mind blown, Andy, if you put what they just passed on top of everything else they just passed, you're talking over $5 trillion. Wow. So definitely probably get you to the moon.
5: That is a big number. And back.
4: Lynn, let's start with something that you've been following a lot, really, ever since the CARES Act passed last spring. How will everyday Coloradans be impacted by this latest influx of money?
8: Well, there's a lot that will put money in people's pockets. You know, we're talking a $1,400 stimulus check for an individual making less than $75,000 a year, phasing out by $80,000 per year. Um, For people who've been unemployed, the federal unemployment insurance boosts of $300 per week will remain until September 6th.
5: And let me jump in there. It's not just the boost. They'll actually be extending benefits. For a lot of people, benefits would have expired this month. And they've now got six extra months of not just the boost, but of receiving benefits, period. That's huge.
4: And what does that mean for people, Andy? Because I know you've talked to a lot of people that are relying on this money.
5: Well, you know, when benefits ran out the last time, which was just a few months ago, I heard from people who were pawning wedding rings, who were not paying rent, who were just barely hanging on until the new benefits showed up. So those folks will be in a much more stable position throughout most of the end of this year.
4: And then one thing I think I've heard quite a bit about is this direct money going to families with young children.
8: Right. Um, This is basically the expansion of the child tax credit. Essentially, it's guaranteed income for kids every month. It's a three thousand dollars per kid um, ages six to 17. You can get a little bit more if they're younger than that. Hmm. And they get it monthly. Um, Not that full amount, but part of that, you know, monthly. Hmm. It's only for a year. But some Democrats are already talking about how to make that
5: permanent.
4: And Colorado Senator Michael Bennett has been a big proponent of this policy. It seems like it's a pretty significant win for him.
5: Did he play like a role in negotiating this?
4: Yeah. Well, you know, when he ran for president, this was something that he talked about as well. But he's
8: been pushing this since, I think, about 2015. I mean, you know, he he talked a lot about how this will help raise about 50 percent of the kids in poverty out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's been involved with another with a group of Democratic senators uh, really pushing this matter in the caucus. And you know, now in the Senate and with President Biden, apparently.
4: So our show Colorado Matters talked to our other senator, Democrat John Hickenlooper, and he mentioned something that did not make it into this final bill, a $15 minimum wage.
5: We're going to have to negotiate, almost certainly, and try and get Republican support. And I'm ever the optimist. I think we will be able to get that support. But, you know, we haven't had an increase in the minimum wage for 10 years. I mean, that's outrageous. It's just ridiculous. And it's part of why we've got so much homelessness is part of why there's social unrest at every level.
8: I don't think the $15 minimum wage is going to go away anytime soon. But, you know, it's not something that's going to get a lot of Republican votes. And I I think this is interesting because Hickenlooper is part of this sort of moderate caucus in the Senate, you know, trying to work with Republicans and find bipartisan solutions. But this is not going to be an area where they can find bipartisan solution. Yes, $15 can pass through the House where it's a simple majority. But in the Senate, when you need 60 people, you're not going to get 10 Republican senators on a $15 minimum wage at this point. It's just not going to happen.
4: He seems to kind of allude to that because he said he is ever the optimist. Uh, speaking of not having consensus, this package passed on a strictly party line vote. President Biden did say that Democrats came close to getting Republican support, but ultimately did not get that.
8: Biden dual-tracked it, you know, bipartisan negotiations while also pursuing reconciliation.
5: Now, now?
4: (laughs) yeah, can can you explain uh, dual-tracked and uh, reconciliation? Sorry, um,
8: dual-tracked, you know, on the one hand, he was doing bipartisan negotiations with Republicans, but on the other hand, he was also telling Democrats, yeah, go ahead, do reconciliation. And reconciliation is basically this budget process in the Senate that they can do to basically pass a bill by simple majority. 51 votes max is what you
5: need. So they were both simultaneously trying to find a way to get it done with strong 60 vote support while also getting ready for the very real possibility, which is what they ended up doing, that they would use some legal maneuvering to get it done with their very bare majority. Right. Because,
8: you know, going back to something you mentioned earlier, they didn't want the unemployment insurance to lapse, which it does
4: mid-March. Andy, I'm kind of relieved we don't have to deal with the reconciliation process at the local level here.
5: Yeah, we've managed not to make things that complicated exactly in Colorado. I do think it's funny, Ben, to mention that, uh, as Biden said, they almost got some Republican support. It was almost bipartisan. I don't think that counts for much.
8: Uh, No, the, the two sides were actually really far apart, even like this bipartisan group. Republicans in that group, we're talking about like a $600 billion range. That's like $1.2 trillion less than what the Democrats and Biden were proposing.
5: That's only a third of halfway to the moon.
4: <laughs> exactly. What a lot of lawmakers we deal with every day may want to know is what does this do for state and local governments?
8: Colorado should be getting about $6 billion total. $4 billion will be going to the state and $2 billion for local governments and tribal governments.
4: So with the first COVID stimulus package, some people were frustrated that Governor Jared Polis didn't consult with a lot of state lawmakers about how to spend the money. This time around for the state funds, I think it could be a little bit different because lawmakers are actually in session at the Capitol. So I think we may see more coordination.
5: Yeah, that's right. And we're already actually seeing a a sign of a different approach With the state stimulus package, which is a separate thing that they're doing, Democratic and Republican lawmakers had a big joint press conference to talk about how they're going to collaboratively spend about another $700 million.
4: Can you explain where this state money comes from?
5: Yeah, essentially, it's a windfall. They did not do as badly in terms of state revenue as they expected that they might during the pandemic. Sources of revenue like Income taxes and sales taxes were just a little more steady through the pandemic than they anticipated. So they made these huge cuts last year, but they didn't need to, in the end, make all of them. So now they got a little extra one-time spending money left over, which this week they announced kind of their plans of where they wanted to spend that.
4: Well, so where do they want to spend it? Because you've got Republicans and Democrats, it sounds like, agreeing on a lot of ideas with the governor.
5: It would surprise somebody who only follows federal politics. They were simpatico on this one. They talked about some shovel-ready roadway projects, the Eisenhower Tunnel, you know, on I-70 to Vale. They talked about clean energy transition, some money for local governments and others to install renewable energy and help people get jobs when they've been displaced out of the coal industry. The list really goes on.
4: Hmm. Colorado's economy, especially for white-collar workers, people fared pretty well during the pandemic. The economy is doing better than people expected, like you mentioned. Mm. We've heard from Republicans nationally, especially questioning why the federal relief, why this huge influx of money is necessary when there are states like Colorado that aren't doing that bad. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert had a typically colorful reaction when she commented on this.
3: This legislation uses COVID
2: like cheap drugstore concealer, masking the nasty truth about Democrat spending. This is nothing more than a trashy spending spree.
5: While the tax revenues for the state, for example, might be doing okay, that's on the back of, again, those white-collar professionals, Mm -hmm. uh, continued spending... But the other side of the economy is really still hurting people who have been out of work for months because entertainment venues, restaurants have been so severely cut back and that it's going to take a while to dig out for those sectors and those people.
8: I've been talking to some local leaders on the Western Slope, and honestly, you know, the response varied. Some talked about needing the money, others while not directly lobbying for state and local aid said they know how they'd use it if they get it. Like there was only one person that I spoke with who said, nope, don't need any money, don't want any money. And how they use the money would vary. You know, grants for businesses, vaccine rollouts, dealing with some of the secondary issues of the pandemic, Mm. you know, temporary housing for people who get evicted or like broadband, like because everyone needs internet these days. But the people, you know, the leaders, Democrat, Republican, unaffiliated, they said aid is needed and they know how they want to use the money.
5: By the way, those topics you mentioned are also where a lot of that state stimulus money is going as well. I didn't mention it, but stuff like housing, broadband.
8: Hmm. One last thing, sorry, just because one of the things you do hear a lot from Republicans is this idea of this blue state bailout. You know, I think Colorado would, would technically be in that column since it's a blue state. But again, Republicans and Democrats, both sides of the aisle State leaders, local leaders have been calling on this for months now.
4: Maybe a little bit of a difference between the local elected officials versus some of the federal members of Congress. There is certainly a lot to talk about when Congress spends nearly $2 trillion. But you'll have to bear with us, Caitlin, because it just wouldn't be fair to completely ignore the state legislature. So um, there's been a lot going on at the Colorado Capitol.
5: Yeah. You know, despite a kind of a disrupted session, we are following the usual pattern. We're now at the point where these really significant, but, you know, some of the more straightforward policy bills are coming up for uh, committee hearings, et cetera, right now. And at the same time, the more complicated, bigger stuff like transportation is just starting to emerge, all the details and all the bills.
4: Right. So I've followed two Democratic gun measures. Mm. The Senate debated a bill to require reporting of lost and stolen firearms. And then the House actually passed a proposal on a party line vote. That would require people to safely store firearms. Hmm. And so Democrats feel it would prevent accidents and deaths and children from gaining access to weapons. Republicans say it is just not the government's role to mandate this and could prevent people from being able to quickly access a firearm. So that's like
5: one of those secondary gun issues that nonetheless, I'm guessing, turns out to be pretty controversial.
4: Well, yes, it was an intense debate uh, in the House that lasted a full day late into the night. And then at one point early on, actually, lawmakers had to shelter in place. There was a shooting at a park across the street from the state capitol.
5: I heard about that. Did that shape the debate at all?
4: People on social media definitely pointed out the irony of having this debate while this shooting happened. But no, the policy didn't really apply to that situation. So other than lawmakers briefly being told to stay away from the windows, there wasn't much of a disruption.
5: So having that really heated debate early on in the session about guns, do you think that will affect at all how the rest of the session goes? How did it actually play out between the two parties?
4: Well, one representative, Republican Richard Holtorf, said he thinks this type of measure further divides people, especially in urban and rural areas and really inflames tensions. He's from southeastern Colorado and does represent a rural part of the state.
1: There are a lot of people from the country that have had enough. Now, what do you mean by have enough? Well, I will tell you, I was having some, maybe some of the most difficult discussions I've had with my people about where are we going from here? And I urge them to not talk and think what they were talking and thinking. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight on that. Our country was founded on rebellion. And there are political winds where I come from. And I'm not making this up, ladies and gentlemen, so let's understand where we're going. Representative Fulltor, let's make sure we're not talking
5: about the next step being rebellion or anything like that.
4: And so that was Speaker of the House Alec Garnett. And then he had to make a similar warning again and then eventually urged everyone to take a breath, get a glass of water, not impugn other people's motives for legislation.
5: Wow. So the implications were really flying there. Yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, I've been covering a different set of issues that probably won't get that heated level of rhetoric, but still are going to have a big impact on a, a broad swath of people's lives. The Democrats have put forward what would probably be one of the most substantial, significant, broad-ranging sets of housing bills that they have in recent history anyway.
4: Oh, wow. So what are some of the details?
5: They are talking a lot about evictions, which, of course, has been a huge issue throughout the pandemic. So one of the bills, for example, would set a firm cap on how much you could be assessed in in late fees, you know, not more than two and a half percent of what you owe. More importantly, it would say you can't be charged a late fee until two weeks after the rent is actually due. The general idea there is to reduce the number of different ways that people can fall behind on rent and give them more ability to not be evicted once some of these protections expire.
4: So, Andy, are these policies that were temporarily put in place because of the pandemic?
5: Well, there is a set of policies that was put in place, the federal moratorium, some state limits, and those are going to be rolling off sometime eventually. But these proposals that are up for debate now would be permanent, permanent changes in renters' rights.
4: Okay, so kind of expanding what was done during the pandemic.
5: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, the general message is that the pandemic highlighted the need and just how vulnerable people can be to displacement from housing. And they want to create permanent protections against that.
4: And so, Andy, do you see this housing debate being as partisan as the gun issue?
5: Generally, yes. I, I don't oh. think that I've ever heard anybody talk about revolution when it comes to a housing debate, but it falls right into, you know, personal property, private property debates where people are saying, if I'm a landlord, I'm from the conservative side, if I'm a landlord and I'm renting out this unit, then I should have the right to evict to you and I should have the right to collect my rent.
4: I've already had some long days with the gun bills, and I, it looks like you've got that in store for you as well with these housing policies.
5: Committees, here I come.
0: Public affairs reporters Andrew Kenney and Benza Berkland and Washington, D.C. reporter Caitlin Kim and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear the entire episode and others at Apple, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. When we come back more songs for our pandemic escape playlist. We'll hear why they mean so much to Tigres' Laura Resendez. Yo, por un amor no
5: tengo ninguna
0: this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
5: The coronavirus vaccine is rolling out across Colorado. Perhaps you're wondering if it's your turn and if not, when will that be? And where can you get your shot? I'm health reporter John Daly from the CPR Newsroom. CPR News has all the information you need. Our guide to COVID vaccines in Colorado is always updated, and you'll find it at CPR.org. Click on COVID-19. While you're there, you can also read or listen to CPR's coverage of the pandemic, again at CPR.org.
0: Now a Colorado DJ on how she's used music to help her listeners cope with the pandemic. Laura Recendes of Thornton hosts a weekend program on Tigre FM, a Spanish language station with signals in both northern and southern Colorado.
2: Somos Tigre FM, estación que le toca puras buenas. My name is Laura Resendez. I go by Laurita. On-air, I'm an on-air personality for TIGER-FM. I've been doing this for 20 years now. It's going to be actually 21 uh, this year. And gosh, I enjoy it. I have a couple of segments. One, I call it Las Moviditas de Laurita, like the movements of Laurita. It's a whole hour of happy music of cumbia. I always tell our listeners, I always say it to mom or to dad, um, hey um it's the whole hour, you know, we're starting, so let's go ahead and get the kids, you know, to start dancing. Or even the broom, you know, come on if <laughs> If the kids are not there or or the husband doesn't want to dance with me or whatever, you know, I just try to make it a little bit fun and, and entertaining so they can feel that we're with them. We are really trying to do our part to make them get their feelings out, that pain maybe, that anxiety that they're feeling at the moment. That connection, you know, with their own senses, even with their memories. It's been hard. It really has. There was a time when all this started, I was enabled to go to the station. I would just... Um, connect with another DJ and would help out with weather, with traffic. But there wasn't that uh, me, you know, by myself on air connecting with our people. Gosh, (laughs) it, it was hard. It was a hard time. Let's put it that way. And I really felt so much for the people that were out there because I said, if I'm feeling this way, how is our people feeling? There's a lady that usually calls and she used to call when she was working, but it would be a quick call. Hey, I'm working. Can you just, uh, you know, send a shout out to so-and-so or, you know, but now she has called and, oh, I'm here at home. Um, so-and-so passed away and, you know, she's feeling very, very sad and, And that she doesn't want, you know, I guess their uh, family to know how sad she is. And it's hard when you, when you listen to those type of stories. And, um, and, and yet you still need to um, continue doing your job, you know, and it hasn't been one person, you know, it's, it's been more than one. I've taken a little break and. And have gone to the bathroom and washed my face or, or have taken, you know, a little sip of uh, my green tea or, or have called my husband and said, you know what, I just had this call. Because I, you know, I, I can't come back and, and, and be all happy because it does, you do feel their pain. The only thing that you can do is to be really grateful that they were able to open up to you so that way they feel better. It's hard what we're doing right now, but I don't think it's impossible. It's it's just a matter of uh, putting our little grain, grain of sand. Nuestro granito de arena, how we would say in Spanish. There's a song that I always play, always, 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 at the end of the program. Even my little one now knows it. And this song talks about love. It says, uh, Viva el amor, ah, viva el amor. Viva esta vida que el Creador nos dio It talks about the love of uh, of life. This gentleman, you know, the, the one that sings it, Marco Antonio Solis. Oh my gosh, what can we say about him? He's such a... He's just a great guy full of light. There's also another one. It's an old song. Um, Be Red, it talks about, you know, like living life. In the meantime that we're here, uh, it says... uh, Vive, vive feliz ahora mientras puedes, tal vez mañana. No tenga suerte para sentirte despertar. It's a very beautiful song. It's, it says that live life right now because maybe tomorrow you're not going to be able to wake up. You know, it's it's kind of like a sad song, but it's a it's a truthful song, and I want to incorporate it because I, I think that our people are going to connect with that song because of what we're going through bendiciones para todos ustedes. Los esperamos en Tigre, Colorado, a través de la 102.1 FM o bien 1450 AM. Besitos a todos.
1: Abre tus brazos fuertes a la vida
3: No dejes nada a la deriva Del cielo nada te caerá
5: Trata de ser feliz con lo que tienes
0: TIGRE FM DJ Lara Resendez, you can catch her program Saturdays from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. on 102.1 FM in Greeley and Fort Collins. Thanks again to our producer, Ali Bundner, and audio engineer Pedro Lombrano for putting that together. By the way, on weekdays, Resendez has a different kind of audience, fourth graders. She teaches at a school in Adams 12 District. As DJs share their tracks with us that have gotten them through the pandemic, we're adding them to a Spotify playlist, which you can find at CPR.org. Right now, also hear recommendations from ND1023's Bruce Trujillo and Kurt Newswanger, a longtime Christian broadcaster on the Western Slope. <laughs> That's Colorado Matters for today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you to the team that helps bring this show to air
1: Carl Bielek, Allie Butner.
0: Andrea Dukakis,
8: Michelle
6: Fulcher,
7: Matt Hers, Michael Hughes,
0: Carla Jimenez,
5: Pedro Lumbrano,
0: Patrice Mondragon,
5: Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner,
0: and I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.